You are listening to a Live City Church podcast, and we hope you'll experience Jesus today. We are excited to have you join our extended online church family. If you would like further information or wish to access more content, please connect with us on our Live City Church Facebook page or visit us at livecitychurch.com. Second Samuel chapter eight, uh, chapter eighteen, and reading from verse six. Let's read together. I've got the New Living Translation. So the battle began in the forest of Ephraim, and the Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and twenty thousand men laid down their lives. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men. This thing, I, this just really blows my mind. If you got a, uh, you got your smartphone, right? Make sure you highlight this. So, if you don't have a Bible with you, use your smartphone. Just go to your browser and type in Second Samuel eighteen verse six. So, look at this. More men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. Does it blow your mind a little bit here? If you're wondering, if you ever watch Lord of the Rings, you know how the Ents, the trees come to life and they are killing people and throwing stuff? That's where Tolkien got this from. He was a, a man of God. He was a, he was a Catholic, but he, he really loved the Lord. And he read that scripture and he wrote based on that. Okay, the Ents. Verse 9, during the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. Right? I'm trying to picture this because I got short hair. It's like, how did that happen? How is it possible? But he got caught in the tree. His mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. One of David's men saw what had happened and told Joab, the general, I saw Absalom dangling from a great tree. What? Joab demanded. You saw him there and didn't kill him? I would have rewarded you with ten pieces of silver and a hero's belt. I would not kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver, the man replied to Joab. We all heard the king say to you and Abishai the Ittai, for my sake, please spare young Absalom. And if I had betrayed the king by killing his son, and the king would certainly find out who did it, you yourself would be the first to abandon me. Enough of this nonsense, Joab said. Then he took three daggers and plunged them into Absalom's heart. Some of you have the word spear. Three spears rammed into his heart as he dangled, still alive, in the great tree. Ten of Joab's, it didn't finish there, so three spears stabbing this guy's heart, and then ten of Joab's young armor bearers then surrounded Absalom and killed him, if that wasn't enough. Then Joab blew the ram's horn, and his men returned from chasing the army of Israel. They threw Absalom's body into a deep pit in the forest and piled a great heap of stones over it, and all Israel fled to their homes." During his lifetime, this is where I want you to zone in on, verse 18. During his lifetime, Absalom had built a monument to himself (laughs) in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to carry on my name. He named the monument 
after himself. And it is known as Absalom's monument to this day. I was watching on YouTube. I thought I'd do a bit of research. And apparently, he picked the King's Valley for a reason. Because everyone had to go to the valley because there was the source of water for the city. So everyone had to go past this massive monument to look at him. And according to this guide in Israel, he says, guess who's buried in Absalom's monument? And, and uh, some people say it's King Herod. And the reason they did that is because they wanted everyone to not desecrate it. But actually, it was Absalom's body that was buried in this monument. So this monument to himself, which actually became his gravestone. When you think about the story of Absalom, I think about a guy with so many stuff-ups. I think we've all made decisions that seem good at the time. If you live long enough on the planet, you know what I'm talking about. It seemed like a good idea. I remember when I was in school trying to impress the girls. I did some stupid things. I, I don't know why I did it, but we had these meter-long thermometers that we used in science. It was in the science lab. I know. I picked it up. I was playing with it for a little bit, twirling it like a baton. And then I saw a fly sitting there. I don't know what got into me. I thought I liked the fly with the thermometer. And just as when I realized, what are you doing? I stopped myself, but it was a, a meter long. It broke and smashed. I got in trouble. I remember another time I thought I'd be really fancy in the science room. I don't know what it is. It's all the gear. It looks really fancy. And I went to one of those dissection needles. It looked like a mini harpoon. And I wanted to impress the girls. And I got another guy, can I just be fair? Another guy was doing it, so I thought I'd do it too. So he did it first, and then I came up later, and I took a few, and I'm dropping them in the, aqua in the aquarium. We have this big tank, fish tank, and I'm dropping in the fish like I'm harpooning them. I know, it's just stupid. I don't know what I was thinking at the time. And uh, I was still, I mean, we're talking like great, you know, we were in high school, but one of my ex-girlfriends told on me to the science teacher who wasn't in the room. His name was Mr. Aldridge. He's alive today. We're Facebook friends. Maybe he'll... Mr. Aldridge, if you're watching this, I'm so sorry. We called him Mr. Baldridge because he was bald from Georgia. Mr. Baldridge found out, and he saw stars. He was furious. He came marching that big bulk of a man. Paul, what are you doing? And I told him, oh, but Darren, no, no, no. I saw you. You hey, watched you do it. He hauls me over to the principal's office, and I wasn't friendly. We were like friend terms with the principal. He was a cool dude. But... He realized he was in a, in a predicament now because he has to correct me. Back in the day, so kids, you know, this never happens in your day. You guys got it easy. But the principal in his office, he had this board. It was like a, a big board, and he drilled holes in it. I don't know if you were around at the time, Ruth. But he had holes in it they drilled in there to make it aerodynamic. And it had a handle on it. And he actually put a label on it. It was called Whistler. I said to me, Paul, bend over. So I'm over the side of this thing. And he picks up Whistler. I'm thinking, oh, look, I've been hit by worse than this. Usually, like, thin, the thinner they are, the, the worse it is. He's, he's not going to hurt me with this one. Well, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> my whole gluteus maximus came alive. I could feel the heat soaring through my body from the top of my head down to the soles of my feet. I thought, dear God, I never thought this pain was possible. <laughs> It doesn't happen today. This is why you don't have it. I, I, I destroyed it for you guys, so you don't have to suffer anymore. But I, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> you know, I think we've all done that. Am I the only one here? I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, this is my deepest dark. Thank you, Frankie. Thank you for one honest person. This of you guys says, I'd never do anything like that. I'm a wise person. I know you. Jesus is watching you. 
But <laughs> I'm reading this story of Absalom, I'm thinking, because if you know his story, you realize, man, this guy, this story is so sad. It's just so tragic because he does one stupid thing after another and he keeps repeating himself. And the worst part about it is that he doesn't learn from his mistakes. The Bible tells us about this guy who had it good. I mean, he had every possible opportunity to, to live life to the full, to be successful in life, but his life is cut short. The Bible describes him as the best, most handsomest looking man in all of Israel. Ladies, if you saw this guy, you would have swooned. The Bible describes it this way in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25-26. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Ladies in today's languages say he's fine. He's fine. He was good looking. But it doesn't end there. The Bible describes this crazy thing on there, this footnote. Verse 26, it says, Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time. When it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. I had to look that up. What on earth is 200 shekels? 2.28 kilo. His hair was 2.28 kilos in weight. He had like really fine, thick, beautiful looking hair. You know, like the kind of Fabio. You know, the hair looks just fine. Some of you guys weren't alive to know who Fabio is, but some of the older ones know what I'm talking about. Is there another Fabio, some equivalent? But this guy, you know, that, that just coming out of the water and he flicks his hair like that, you know, and it flicks back and all the ladies are, ah. that's Absalom. He is fine looking. Everything about him is good looking. He is a prince in Israel. He has the opportunity, who knows, to become king one day. He's a prince in good standing. And that's as far as it went. Because later, he begins doing such incredibly stupid stuff that he ends up becoming a traitor. When I'm thinking a traitor, I'm thinking, because uh, I'm trying to understand the depth of the stupidity of this guy. And I'm thinking as being trained in the American system, Benedict Arnold. Have you ever, ever heard of Benedict Arnold? So he was actually a general in the, uh, under George Washington, a general. Think about this for a moment. He was known as a traitor in America. If you think of the greatest American trader, it would be Benedict Arnold. So I actually realized I didn't know enough about him, and I won't bore you with the details, but according to history, he was famous because he was highly successful as a general fighting against the English. These are the Americans during the English-American War. They wanted independence. And so he was fighting for the Americans under General Washington, highly successful. He was highly successful on land. He was highly successful on water. And he kept going up and kept getting rewarded. But something had to go wrong in the peace to be able to turn a highly successful general, well-known, decorated, to become a traitor to his own people. And according to history, there was a reason behind his treachery. Number one, he was greedy. 
the, they, they say that he had personal debt, debts that were so high he could not afford his lavish lifestyle. And so he needed money and thought he could sell his services to the English for 20,000 British pounds. Back in that day, that was a, that's a lot of money. He also became disillusioned with the revolutionary cause. In fact, his wife was actually working for the British and she had something to do with turning his head. And on top of that, Congress appointed younger men than him higher in higher rank than he was despite all the successes he had. And all these elements led up to a guy who's highly offended, who's greedy, and who's got a chip on his shoulder. He's going to make people pay. And this was the thing that eventually turned him around. History tells us that despite the fact that he, was, he betrayed his own people, he escaped the noose. He wasn't killed. But the guy that he was working with, he threw him under the bus, and he ran away and escaped to England. But the story goes on that this man didn't live to see the 20,000 pounds that he was promised. He received 6,000 pounds. In fact, his debts kept amounting so much, and because he was such a traitor, he had such a bad reputation, no one wanted to hire the guy. So he ended up going back to his original occupation. He was a merchant ship owner in Canada and the Caribbean. And by the time he died at the age of 60, very young, he died alone and was buried without any military honors. I think to myself, what would it take to cause a man, what would it take to cause a woman like you, a godly person, to turn from your faith so completely? What would it take? I have seen people turn for less than that. They would leave their faith. They would leave their relationship with the Lord. The danger is this. The Bible says the person who has tasted of the fruit of the things to come, you've tasted and you know the word of God. You've seen the goodness of God on your life. If you turn, it's almost impossible to actually come back. But I've seen people sell themselves for less. I want to ask you this morning, what's your price? Absalom had a price. For him, it was a sense of justice. I believe that this guy would have, could have been a really great king. But the sense of justice was not controlled. And that zeal that he had had no wisdom to back it up. And according to the story, where he began to fall happened way back when, when a terrible tragedy happened in his family. As you know, King David had more than one wife. That was the thing they did back then. And so he had a lot of half-brothers, same father, different mothers. Well, what happened was one of his sisters, sadly, she was raped by one of his half-brothers. The guy was devious. He had fallen in love with this girl, and all he had to do was ask for a hand in marriage, but he couldn't contain himself. Now, by the way, all these problems happened because David sin first against Bathsheba and God says that sin of sexual immorality is going to is going to follow your family it will beleaguer your family it will be a curse for you and your family and so David even though he made his heart right with the Lord his children paid the price and so it began with one so one brother he rapes uh, Absalom's sister and Absalom is absolutely furious he's burning with anger and he wants retribution again 
comes out of a good cause. He wanted vengeance. We understand that because it was wrong. It was an injustice, but he didn't allow the courts to deal with his brother. And so he wanted to take justice into his own hands. And so he and his brother conspired against all their other brothers. And he throws a party. And so none of them had any idea, because this is this happening years after that happened. So they couldn't join the dots and realize, hang on a second, there's something going on here. Something is suspicious here. They had no idea. They thought they're just going to party with their brothers. He's throwing this big, lavish party. No one wanted to miss out. And so they all converged on this party, all the sons and all the daughters, the prince and the princesses. And before the party had even begun in full force, he comes out, he and his brother, and stabs that brother to death right in front of all the princes and princesses. And they ran off crying to their dad. The punishment for murder should have been his death as well, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth. Everyone knew the law. But King David, in his grace, wanted to give his son another chance. Have you ever given someone another chance and then they turn around and stab you in the back? That's what happened to King David. So much grace. So, I don't know, it was a fault of David. He had so much grace for the brother, his son, that raped his own half-sister. He let him live that it caused Absalom to want to take out vengeance. But now that Absalom committed murder, so you got rape going on, you got murder, and still King David did not deal with it. Instead, he says, I'm going to let you live, but I'm going to banish you away to live horribly in a castle in the countryside. A horrible lifestyle with servants looking after him and cooking for him at his beck and call. But there was a hunger inside of Absalom. He wanted the best of the best. And he had a chip on his shoulder. How dare you throw me out into this country? How dare you do things? It's amazing the amount of people, the amount of Christians in church that will destroy their own Christian walk because of offense. They can't get over it. They can't deal with it. You know, a lot of times that offense could be dealt with by conversation. But even then they won't have it. And they're thinking about these things and they're stewing on it until it becomes a poison to their soul and they'll leave without hardly a word spoken because they've gone too far down the road. The poison has seeped into their body, into their soul. Well, Absalom was seething in anger. So that anger that was placed and he used to kill his half-brother, he's still seething in anger now. This time is directed against his father. And he's concocting a way to come back into the kingdom, but now he's looking beyond that. He's thinking, I'm going to make my dad pay. How dare he send me out here in banishment out in the countryside when I should be there with my brothers and sisters, the princes, and I should rightfully be the king of Israel. And so he begins to plot a way to try and get the throne. The story tells us that he was very, very manipulative in the way he did this. He's clever. He went to the city gates where everyone, where all business is conducted, that business and also court was being conducted there. He went there, and as people were entering into the city, he'd be waiting for them. He says, hey, how are you? Do you know who I am? Oh, you're Prince Absalom. Yeah, yeah. What, what's, what's your business in the city? Oh, I've got to go see the king. What about? And they'd begin telling them the problems that they, that they were having. And then he'd begin telling them, so what did the king do about it? And whenever he saw that there was unhappiness, oh, the king did this. And he goes, you know what? If I was king, I would never do that to you. 
You ever had someone do that to you? I would never do that. You know, you are right. You know, that was unfair. If I were king, I would change everything for you. And he did this. And it wasn't just once. It wasn't just twice. It wasn't over a period of a month. He did this over a period of years. He had this strategy in mind, very soft way of trying to overtake the kingdom. So he won the heart of the people one by one. Crazy thing. And so after many years of manipulating the hearts of the people, the Bible tells us he won them. He won their hearts. And all it took was to be able to win over a few friends and a few key people in office for him to take over the kingdom. But I want to give you some key things from this passage that I want you to take away with you because it will change your life. Are you ready for it? Here's the first one. Everything led up to this battle. And he was going up against a very seasoned and very talented general. I mean, King David was the greatest fighter there was. And the men serving under him were equally formidable. They were amazing fighters and all those soldiers. King David left the city when his son took over, not because he couldn't fight. He just didn't want to kill his son. And he didn't want to lose so many lives through civil warfare. And so he left the city. But you're going to have to pay the price anyway, David. And this is what happened. This was the final battle. But here's the first point I want you to take note of. Number one, choose your battleground. When you're going up against the enemy, choose your battleground. You see, Joab, David's commander, is so seasoned and so good at fighting, but also he understood the location in Israel, the best places to fight, and knowing that he would be coming from a defensive position, he picked the woods because he realized how difficult it would be to fight in the woods. And of course, we realized he was highly successful. More people were killed because of the trees than they were killed by the sword of men, <laughs> which really amazes me. So he picked the battlefield very, very carefully. In the same way, I feel the Lord saying this, as Christians, don't be caught unaware in conflicts, in battle. You need to pick your battles. The Bible tells us, when Jesus taught us to pray, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But it's amazing how many men and how many women of God willfully put themselves into a position where they get tempted. Right? It's one thing to pray it, but it's another thing to be throwing yourself into temptation after temptation after temptation. I don't know the battle that you're going through, but you've got to pick your battleground where you can win. If you know that you are tempted by porn, why would you put it on your phone? And if you know you're tempted by I'm not watching it anymore, why would you not put software on there that will keep you from accessing it so there's no possible way you can look at it? You've got to protect yourself. Choose your battleground. Husbands, you know, I make it a point with my wife. I make sure that I'm not traveling with another woman in the car. In fact, as it was with children, we had uh, a youth event this week. It was fantastic. Had a lot of fun. I think I had more fun than they did. But I realized Tali wanted to leave the car and she's an adult now. And I thought, oh my goodness, hang on. I left myself open because I've got children in my car now. Anything could be said about me and accuse me of things. So I made sure that Liam Roke was in the car, another adult with me. He's 18 or 19. So we dropped all the other kids off and then I dropped him off and I'd explain to him because he was closer. I could have dropped him off first. Why? I'd never want to put myself in a position where there could be not temptation, or but there could be no accusation. Nothing could be read between the lines. 
I remember in my previous church once, we had our community care director. And we had to go somewhere. There was no one else to take him. We needed to carpool. So I said, I- I'm so sorry, Kathy. You're going to have to sit in the back seat. She was shocked. I said, why? And I explained to her, because I want to protect you, and I want to protect myself. And as I drove, I called my wife up while Kathy's in the car. And I said, honey, I'm just letting you know we're leaving now to go to that event, just so you know we're here. And when I arrived, I called her and said, we're here now. We've arrived. And then when we're coming back to drop her off, and that lady couldn't quite understand it, but I, needed, I understood it. I want to make sure that there's no possibility there's any temptation. Now, no, she wasn't good looking or anything. Not to me. She's in the back. God bless her. But to me, because my wife is the desire of my heart. And I'll never put another temptation in front of my eyes. Because I will not sin against her. You've got to pick your battleground. Win, pick a, a ground that you can win. Don't let the enemy do it for you because if you don't choose, that is the choice that you make and the enemy will make your choices for you and take you down. Pridefully, we often dismiss these temptations that we willfully expose ourselves to, insensitive to the pull that temptation has over us and over time, it will wear you down. Here's number two. You ready for it? Your gift can become your grave. The story tells us that Solomon had the, uh, Absalom had this beautiful hair, so thick and heavy, but it became his own downfall. Because in choosing that battle gun, he didn't choose it. He, fought, he ended up fighting in this battle gun that wasn't his choice. And that very hair that he was admired for became the thing that was the one that strangled him. Can I challenge you with these thoughts? Be careful with that gifting in your life because it can go south. I talked to you about the fact that Absalom had a gift for justice. And if it was used well, he could have become a very good man, a fair man. But instead, he let his pastoral care heart overtake him. He cared so much for his sister, he wanted vengeance for her. It took over. It went crazy. Over the years as a pastor, I've seen people who've got a gift of a pastor in their heart. This is the kind of person, if, 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 if someone's missing from church, you're wondering, I wonder what they're doing. Are they okay? Is everything all right? And they'll check up on them. They'll have conversations with them. Everyone loves a pastor, by the way. My greatest gift isn't that of a pastor. I, I do have a pastoral gift. My wife faults me with this one. It's not my strongest gift, but I have a strong one. But there are the people I would reckon that have a stronger pastoral gift than I do. They're the ones that are constantly calling you. They're messaging you. They're wondering how you are. I've got so many things keeping me occupied. I don't always have time. But that person, they're always worried about you. But sometimes that gift can become polluted and perverted. And what happens is they're thinking so much about that person, they can actually become angry at pastors and leaders because you don't care about these people. No, we do care. But we don't always have the time. We've had conversations. But if God is putting it on your heart, You should look after them. God bless you. That's great. Instead, they're getting angry, they're getting offended, and they'll leave the church because of pastoral care. What they think was not adequate pastoral care. The actual thing is, it's their gift gone crazy. Don't let your gift become your grave. Be careful that your gift does not leave you hanging. You're welcome. I'll let you, just dropping for a minute. <laughs> you still think, oh dear God, this pastor. When your gift is bigger than your character, 
disaster is not far away. See, Absalom probably had what it took to become a king as far as justice goes. But the problem was he always had a chip on his shoulder that he couldn't deal with. And when your character doesn't grow in line with your gifting, what happens oftentimes in church, you see people being elevated to position where they're leader, but the character isn't quite right. All of a sudden, it just takes a bit of pressure when that person finally breaks. And they do the craziest, darndest things. You're thinking, why on earth would they do that? Sadly, this kind of thing is also affecting pastors today. How many pastors have we seen fall into immorality? They've been so focused on the ministry, so burned out, that they make some very poor choices. The character was not developed well enough, and it eventually cost them the ministry and eventually cost them their life. Look in the Bible. We're in good company. Samson, you know, had this incredible gift that took him to become the leader of the nation, but he had a problem with women. He never dealt with that issue, and it became his downfall. King Saul, who was, who was originally a humble man, but he had a, a problem with obedience. He did not fully obey the Lord. He refused to give everything to God. It cost him his life. Judas, one of 12, the 12 disciples of Jesus who performed miracles, healing, signs, and wonders, did so many amazing things like all the other disciples, ends up being a traitor to Jesus because of a woman, the widow, oh, sorry, the woman that poured that, remember she spent a year's wages with perfume and poured it over Jesus' head. According to one of the gospels, it says that he was the one that said that gift could have been sold and given to the poor. According to the story of the Bible, he was stealing from the purse. He was hoping they would, that woman would sell it, put it in the purse, and he would steal the money. Character eventually exposed Judas. And how about Ananias and Sapphira, who gave a generous gift to the church, but they lied about it. Here's key number three. You guys okay? Don't live your life in vengeance. His entire life, Absalom lived for himself. His vengeance, his justification, his kingdom, his right. What was owed to him? Absalom could not shift and change from the course that was set for him because his heart had had him snared into destruction. Can I encourage you this morning to make sure that your heart is right with the Lord? that you're constantly in that place of prayer. You're saying, God, if there be any wicked way in me, reveal it to me. Show me these things so that I can deal with it. You know, the thing that I, that I fear the most is that it just takes one little thing to take me away from the Lord. So every day when I'm praying, because the Bible says, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. I'm praying a prayer of repentance. Oh, God. Reveal the wicked thoughts of my heart. Reveal the things that I'm doing that is, that is keeping me from you. And I'm constantly confessing with the Lord because I never want to be in a place where I, my heart is not right because it's so easy for your heart to be broken and then to want to take vengeance and to want to act out on it. Here's a fourth and final one as I close this morning. Build legacy, not monuments. That's the title of this, of this message. Building monuments versus building legacy. Sadly, many men in their lives have been building monuments to themselves. You're probably wondering, what does it look like? You spend so much time on your own interests, so much time 
on your own careers. I hear it all the time. Pastor, you know, I'm too busy. I'd love to be there, but I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I got my job. I, you don't understand. I work a 120-hour week. Really? I know it's possible, but really? Pastor, I, I don't have time to read the Bible and do these things. I'm a busy, busy person. I don't have time to do it. Really? We spend all our time and all our focus on trying to please ourselves, on trying, because that's ultimately what it's about. It's not just providing for the family. We're trying to make something of ourselves. We're building a monument to ourselves. We're exerting so much pressure on ourselves, so much energy, so much time that we will steal it from our wife and we'll steal it from our children. And we justify, but I'm doing this for the kids. I'm doing this for you. That's usually the last words of a man whose wife has left him. Building monuments, just like Absalom, but we don't even see it. If you're younger, you're thinking about your future. and You're thinking about putting all that time. And, you know, you have more freedom than we do. You don't have a wife. You don't have children you have to think about right now. But are you building into your future? The Bible tells us it is appointed for men to die once and then judgment. But we think we're going to live till we're 80, maybe 100, 120 years old. But you don't know when your life will be required. Thank you for joining Life City Church. And we hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message. If this ministry has made an impact on your life, we'd love to hear from you. Please drop us a line and share your story at thanks at livecitychurch.com or email us your prayer needs at prayer at livecitychurch.com. We'd love to connect with you and hear more about your story. If you love the ministry of Live City Church, you can make a financial gift to help us spread the good news of Jesus by going to livecitychurch.com and clicking the giving tab. We hope today's message has spoken into your life and look forward to your next visit.